Okay, can we turn to Romans, please? Romans, first of all, 5, 2. I didn't tell you, anyone, that Brian was going to speak Sunday because I knew you wouldn't be disappointed and um, did a marvelous job, an excellent, splendid job, Brian, on Ruth, on the Kinsman Redeemer, and that adds a real new increment to the whole understanding of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Kinsman Redeemer, in fact, I'll be hitting some of that also, but a very well-developed, I'm looking forward to the next one, the uh, August 2nd, Brian will be speaking part two on that, on the wings. So I'm looking forward to the wings. Always look forward to the wings. And Phil Henry will be speaking the next night. He'll have the uh, power gospel night again. So um, my wife and I are taking our grandchildren to that play that a lot of you ladies are going to, the Jonah thing out in Lancaster. So very rarely do you get to do spiritual things with your grandsons. So keep that in mind, August 2nd and 3rd, the middle of that week. The two pastors that are now a year into their ordination since July 17th will be stirring up their gifts again, which is a very pleasing thing to me. I'm very, uh, I'm glad I can take a night off once in a while. Romans chapter 5 tonight, the glory of the Father is the name of the teaching tonight, the glory of the Father. It was a thought I woke up with, and sometimes I follow those thoughts. That was the only thought I woke up with. And so I went to the study, and this appeared from my fingers as they typed. No, it was the Holy Spirit guiding, but the glory of the Father. This is probably going to be part one, part two tomorrow night. Let's take a couple moments to prepare in our usual way, SOP, standard operating procedure, a few moments of silent preparation. We are a universal priesthood, part of a universal priesthood of believers. We have equal access to the throne of grace from which we can receive mercy to help in time of need. Whether you know it or not, we're in deep need right now because only by the Holy Spirit's illuminating power can we understand the things we're about to understand and receive. Let's pray then. Father, in keeping with the title of tonight's message, we pray that you will indeed receive glory from what is spoken tonight and what is received by all of us. We thank you for your omnipotent grace. We thank you for your unrestricted love. We thank you for your mercy, which you intend and have resolved with an unstoppable determination to have upon all, as Romans 11.32 teaches. 
So we commit ourselves to you, Father, for the purpose of being transformed by the renewal of our thinking so that we may see a horizon that you see and that we may view your son in a way that you view him. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, one phrase. Paul says, we joyfully boast in the hope of the glory of God. We joyfully boast in the hope of the glory of God. This all boasting passages in Paul are usually rooted in Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 23 and 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast in his strength, nor the man of wealth boast in his riches. But if anyone's going to joyfully boast, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands me, says the Lord, and that I exercise righteousness and mercy in the earth. Righteousness, as we have understood it, is not an attribute of God but an act of God, an act of divine deliverance of God in Christ and by the Spirit that comes to the human race from beyond our control and command to redeem us from powers that we could not redeem ourselves from, including the power of sin. In Paul's homardiology or study of sin or harmartia, He uses the word hamartia in the singular almost all the time because he identifies it not as a moral flaw or a moral failure, but as a power which holds human beings under its control. It's an enslaving power. And as Jesus said, if you're a slave to sin, then you're really a slave. You can be politically free. You can be free to do what you want to do. But if you're not free from sin, you're still a slave, Jesus said. In John eight thirty five, So the f- freedom that we have is an extraordinary freedom. We joyfully boast in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 6, 4. I'm going to take our time to get to these three places. The punch of this is going to come much more tomorrow night, I think. There are elements of the cross of Christ that I've been reading that are intensely sobering and very almost gripping. And I have been gripped very strongly by the Holy Spirit that we are never, ever to forget the means by which Jesus died by crucifixion and that we never forget that. Romans 6, 4, please note the theme as it radiates through this. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, this is the second part of it, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. That's a strange thing to say. He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So we, that means so we, by the glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead. So we, too, may walk in a new way of life. We walk in a new way of life 
by the glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead, not by any moral probity on our part, not by any human uprightness, not by any human goodness, but by the power, by the glory of the Father. One more passage will serve to round out our texts for tonight. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11. And every tongue will acknowledge. I want you to notice that because the word is ex homologeo. I'll just do the English translation, transliteration. Ex homologeo. Now there's two ways of using this word. It can be used in the accusative and it just indicates an open confession. Or it can be used in the dative and it indicates praise or worship or what we call doxology. This is going to be a key term for where we're going in our study in Paul. Better call Paul. Doxology. Which comes from the Greek word doxa plus logos. Glory and word or message. Glory. A doxology is something like what Paul says in Romans 11.33 after coming to the phenomenal and even ecstatic conclusion in Romans 11.32 that God has imprisoned or shut up or closed in all Jews and Gentiles, all humanity in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. Paul goes into a doxology and it's a worshipful expression of praise to the Father. All things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him. They return to him in redemption. God's business is the justification of the ungodly, and justification is the setting right. God sets right what was horribly wrong. God gloriously sets right what was terribly wrong. That's divine justice. Divine justice isn't God seeking to be retributive, seeking to judge mankind in a retribution and a violent justice. Justice is God seeing what's gone terribly wrong through Adam in order to set it gloriously right through Christ. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This has to do with the hope of the glory of God that we glory in, that we boast in, the hope of the glory of God that we boast in. Philippians 2.11, every tongue will acknowledge, ex homologeo, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we sometimes skip over this last phrase, to the glory of God the Father. So I think, as you all have this experience when you're in fellowship with God and you choose, even though I don't do this very well most days, you choose to live not for yourself but for Christ who raised from the dead, 2 Corinthians 5.15. We have that choice, and you try to make the choice. And when I make the choice, simply to choose to live unto Christ who's raised from the dead instead of to myself, then I start to get sort of a few thoughts now and then from God. And it was almost like, don't forget, 
the glory of the Father in all of this. The glory of God for which we hope is the glory which Paul speaks of in Philippians 2.11. It is the glory of God the Father to which the universal genuflection and the universal acknowledgement of Jesus as Yahweh. And that's important because the word kurios there in the Greek, kurios, when it's speaking of Jesus Christ, K-U-R-I-O-S, kurios is equivalent to the tetragrammaton in the Old Testament, Yahweh, in the case of Jesus Christ. And so he is actually going to be acknowledged by every tongue. That's every tongue without exception. All volitional, rational beings. Not even just human beings. But all volitional, rational beings will acknowledge him as Lord. Now what we've said many times before is we have to understand this word ex homo Does it mean that they are forced to acknowledge him as Lord? Or does it mean that they voluntarily do so? in a faith-filled, doxological way, in a praising way. If it's a praising way, then we know that that is indicative of a salvation, a salvific acknowledgement. In the glo- it is the glory of the Father to which the universal genuflection, before this in Philippians 2.10, every knee will genuflect. And the universal acknowledgement of Jesus as Yahweh is made in the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the Trinitarian truth. It is the glory of God the Father to which the universal genuflection and universal acknowledgement of his Son, Jesus as Yahweh, is made in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's some things I want to round up doctrinally here that I've never seen rounded up before that we have to do here. The glory of God the Father is specifically said by Paul to be the power that raised Christ from the dead. For in Romans 6.4, it says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, by the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father is therefore forever associated with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We just got done studying 1 Corinthians 15, 20, in which there are three military divisions in Paul's analogy. There is the aparche division, the first fruits, Christ himself raised from the dead. The second is the parousia division, has its own standard and flag In Numbers chapter 2, as we understand, it's a military division of resurrection, an order of resurrection. The second is the parousia, those who will have believed in Jesus Christ and therefore embraced the redemption that's in him in this life. The third is the telos division, which is those who arguably did not believe in this life, but who are embraced by Jesus Christ. Unbelievers in this life are not excluded from the justification of the ungodly by God the Father. We'd like to think so because we believed. But there's never in Paul an exclusion. In fact, when another writer wrote, trying to summarize Paul in order to interpret Paul in 1 Timothy 4.10, he rightly said, God is the Savior of all humankind, especially 
those who believe, not exclusively of those who believe, but especially. Now in Romans 11, and we're going to be heading here pretty soon, Romans 11:16. The scripture says, "If the first fruits are holy, that means sanctified unto God, then the whole batch is holy. He's speaking there of the meal offering, the wave offering and the meal offering in which a portion is offered, called the first fruits in Numbers chapter 15. And if the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And Paul says that Christ is the first fruits in resurrection. And if he is holy, then the whole harvest is holy. And that's why all will be made alive in Christ. It is God's doing. God did this. It's beyond our command and control. God stepped in in this redemption. Paul's gospel is about a divine invasion into the present evil age to rescue humanity and all creation from powers like sin, like death, and like Torah that had been hijacked by sin to be one of the powers that enslaves. And he was successful in this. He does this through two divine missions, the mission of the Son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, ex apostello, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the law, which had become a power under sin that held the whole human race captive. And he has also sent the Holy Spirit, ex apostello, divine mission two, into our hearts, the spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, to the glory of the Father. Note the Trinitarian aspect of Galatians 4, 4 through 6. So the glory of the Father is forever associated with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that the Father is glorified by the universal acknowledgement that Yahweh, or the Lord, is Jesus, implies very strongly that universal resurrection is in view. Because we're talking about to the glory of God the Father. The glory of God the Father is the power that raised Jesus from the dead when every tongue acknowledges that Yahweh is Yeshua, that the, we can say Jesus is Lord if you want. That's the same meaning, but it's, it's in the Greek, it's the Lord comes first. The Lord is Jesus. The Lord is Jesus. Yahweh of the Old Testament is Yeshua of the New Testament, which means that Jesus Christ is the God of Israel, and which means that we are the Israel of God, and that's the whole New Testament, the understanding of the whole New Testament in terms of ecclesiology or the study of the church called out, messianic community we are merely a provisional and proleptic community we're like the 13 colonies of what is now the united states of america 340 million people we were once the 13 colonies the church also is a proleptic community and a tiny sample of a universal harvest if the first fruits christ is holy then the whole universal harvest to come is holy, including the telos division in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. It all ends up in 28, where we were 
working on last week and the week before, where when the son submits himself to the father, he submits all things to the father, all created reality to the father, so that the father, God, may be all in all. That's the glory of the father. So once again, the glory of the father is forever associated with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in Romans 6, 4. And that God the Father is glorified, or it's to the glory of the Father, of the universal acknowledgement that Yahweh is Jesus, implies very strongly that universal resurrection is in view. The glory of God the Father, it seems, is also forever associated then with the universal resurrection to life of human beings from the dead. Remember, those who have done evil in John 5, 28 and 29 are raised to crisis, not to condemnation, but to a judgment of acquittal, to a rectified status. Their judgment is a rectification. Their judgment, their punishment, if you want to call it punishment, is a transformation by the grace of God into something that they were not before. The model for this is the eschatological prototype named Saul. But our series isn't better called Saul. That's on TV. Ours is better called Paul. Because Paul is the prime candidate for this. He was evil. He was a persecutor. He was a... Persecutor of Christians that even in Acts 26.11 made them say, made Christians say, Jesus anathema instead of Jesus kurios. Jesus is cursed. And he refers to this in 1 Corinthians 12.3 when he says, No man speaking in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is cursed. Anathema. And he also said, neither can anyone say, no one has the ability to say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. We could say, no one has the ability to say, Jesus is Lord, that's heard by the Father, except by the Holy Spirit. People can say it mockingly. People say, Jesus Christ all the time in cursing, but they also, Christians say it on a game show. If they're winning, they'll say, Jesus It's no difference than that. And then saying Jesus when you're cursing, it's it's the same thing. It's all the name of Yahweh spoken in vain. It can be spoken in vain. But when we say Jesus is Lord, like every tongue is going to say, it can only be said to the glory of the Father by the Holy Spirit. So we are looking at the fact that this Universal acknowledgement of every rational, volitional being, all humanity included, is a statement empowered by the Holy Spirit, which implies that everyone will have the Holy Spirit, which implies a universal justification of the ungodly in resurrection. I told you we were going to radically engage the texts to see if in Paul's epistles there is an apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ, the Lamb enthroned, the Lamb crucified, Christ and him crucified. 
in his universally redemptive significance. And we're saying, so far, this is the 84th time I'm saying yes. We paid our dues. So, I'm sure there are no naysayers to this out there. But if there are, pay your dues to say no to this. Do the same diligence. Okay. And by out there, I mean out in cyberland. I'm sure there's no one who is saying no to the, t- to the gospel I'm preaching. I'm sure everyone's agreeing. You can laugh. It's called sarcasm. And I'm being sarcastic. Now, the glory of God the Father, it seems, therefore is associated with the universal resurrection to life of human beings from the dead. This is the hope of the glory of God, which we boastfully, rejoicingly hope. In the universal resurrection, all human beings, as well as all other rational, volitional beings, including angelic, will say, Kurios, Jesus Christos, es doxon theu patros. Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Moreover, Paul declares that no one can say Jesus is Lord like this, like Philippians 2.11. Except by the Holy Spirit. Please note that if you're a note taker, 1 Corinthians 12.3. If you have a steel trap mind, note it in your mind. 1 Corinthians 12.3. Now, I don't accept the excuse anymore. I don't know what verse, chapter or verse is. I just know the Bible. I just don't know where it is. If you're going to get into a Donnybrook with somebody, you better know chapter and verse. 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He says this in a context of rebutting the overly enthusiastic charismatics. And don't get me wrong, we're all charismatics because we all have a charisma, a spiritual gift. So all Christians are charismatics. But the overly rambunctious, enthusiastic charismatics in Corinth, Paul is speaking against them because their use of their spiritual gift was unchecked. So that there was actually a prophecy, someone says, speaking in the Holy Spirit. They said, anathema, Jesus. Jesus is cursed. And that anathema isn't referring to the curse on the cross. It's referring to a devotion to to destruction. It's a blasphemous assertion. You can't do that in the Holy Spirit. So there is, again, in the context of rebutting the overly enthusiastic charismatics in Corinth, And Corinth is the most like the church in America of any other of the churches to whom Paul wrote by far. Because everything they did was about a triumphant Christianity which avoids the word of the cross and identification with the crucified Messiah. And that's why Paul opens it with a salvo in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross, which to those who are perishing is foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved is the power of God. It's the glory of God that raises us into life. 
going to hit, get, hit you with a little hint. There are people who say, I can't be raised up into such a life because of the shame of my past. And you say, what do you mean? And they'll say, I was sexually abused. But I will answer that by saying, so was Jesus Christ. There's some very stunning silences in the Bible. But when a person goes through castigation, the cat of nine tails, which start by ripping the flesh off and then begin to rip into the skeletal muscles, causing circulatory failure in many people. The person was stripped completely naked. There's no loincloth like you see on crucifixes. There's a complete stripping of, to the point of nakedness and a mocking by these Roman soldiers who were out of their discipline entirely so that the buttocks would be exposed to the cat of nine tails. And the person was crucified that way. And part of the abuse heaped upon crucified victims was their nakedness and their inability to cover their nakedness and the mockery of their exposed genitalia. You tell me that that's not sexual abuse. But there's something even worse than that. The Roman soldiers who were mocking punching and spitting in his face also had custody over him and were abusing him for hours that we don't know about. What I'm trying to say by this is to say there's nothing in your past that you should glory in that shame because you're glorying in a shame that Jesus Christ experienced, but God's glory, the glory of the Father, raised him up out of that shame. You have no excuse. Whatever shame is in your past, including sexual abuse, you have no excuse to glory in that shame. Try glorying in the cross. Now, that's therapy. There's some therapy for you. There is no shame that Jesus Christ did not have heaped upon him in his crucifixion. There is nothing like crucifixion as a diabolically conceived way of dying. And I know people do this, and that's why I've avoided it on Good Fridays. Many times preachers try to get into all the details of the suffering, but it's mostly to manipulate their audience into an emotional thing, just like they do with Christmas pageants. It's all nonsense. I don't, I don't buy any of it. But there is an element of the cross, of crucifixion, that involves a shame that's so radical that even in, as Fleming Rutledge brings out in her book, even as when we had old Sparky, they called it, the electric chair, there was something covering the face so that the witnesses of that death would not have to see the horrific contortions in the face in death throes. Crucified victims had to have that worst kind of shame, the face exposed to shame. And so there's nothing. Think about it. Think about how horrific the shame is, how unspeakable the shame of crucifixion, but then Describe that with the indescribable glory of the Father that raised him up. He endured the cross despising the shame, but is now set 
down at the right hand of God the Father. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ was abused in a way that includes sexual abuse. So if you are sexually abused, you have no right to say that you're not worthy of the life of the newness of life that God's glory raises us up to. Furthermore, another piece of advice that might help you, Jesus Christ forgave his abusers. And there's another piece of therapy that just might save your life. Why glory in your shame when you can glory in the cross to the glory of God the Father? Now that just that little paragraph just might go to help some people out there. Maybe. You can bring the shame on TV. You can bring the shame on Dr. Phil and on Oprah and all these other things where people parade their shame. Or you can parade your shame right to the cross of Christ, the crucified Messiah, and deal with it once and for all and forgive those who have wronged you. Father, forgive them. All right. There's a shame in crucifixion that even outweighs the pain involved in the crucifixion. A diabolically conceived means of execution. God chose that. God chose that. Why? Because he chose that to show just how terrible the condition was that we were in and had to be redeemed from. That's how bad things were. That's how terrible things have gone wrong. It takes the glory of the Father to set right gloriously what's gone terribly wrong. You can't get away from that. The moment you get away from the cross, you have this very ugly kind of triumphalism, a kind of Christian triumphalism that wants to just legislate Christianity right into societies and wants to bring everything Christian and has the Christian bumper stickers and the Christian fish and the Christian this and the Christian that and the Christian this and the Christian symbol and the Christian jewelry and all the rest of it. And even communion service, Jesus said this, remember my death until I come. Remember my death. That means the means of my death. He was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion, even by the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him. You can't measure the shame. It's unspeakable. But you can't measure the glory. It's indescribable. The apostle makes the point that when someone is speaking in the word, in the Holy Spirit, and by his power, it is impossible to say anathema, Jesus. Just as no one can say kurios, Jesus, except by the Holy Spirit. And the word in the Hebrew is, or the Greek is, e me en pneumati hagio. 
in or by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, he says this in a context of certain spectacular charismata that was often unchecked and even more problematically exercised without regard to the word of the cross. The spirit doesn't speak long through his people without the word of the cross. And if something's going on in a congregation that's supposed to be a powerful congregation with words of knowledge and words of wisdom and prophetic words and tongues and interpretation. And the word of the cross is always circumnavigated. Something's very wrong there. Something's wrong. The point I'm moving to make, however, is that if every tongue, and every means every without exception, every tongue acknowledges ex homo legeo, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, no one can say that to the glory of God the Father unless they say it by the Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about a universal declaration of praise, not a forced confession. So, A.T. Robertson in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and his word pictures in the Greek New Testament, I always have that hovering over on the right side of my Bible work 7 to look at. It's one of the miscellaneous things I look at because he's pretty good on most everything. He says, quote, lighthearted men today can say Lord Jesus in a flippant or even an irreverent and an irreverent way. But no Jew or Gentile then said it who did not mean it. That's a good point because when Polycarp, who was the pastor of Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, was tortured, in every time he was tortured through fire, through a roasting kind of torture, they said, they told him, say, Kaiser Kurios. And he would say, Jesus Kurios. They would say, say Caesar is Lord. He would say, Jesus is Lord. They turn up the heat. They turn up the torture instruments. They'd say, now say Kaiser Kurios. And he said, Jesus Kurios. Till he died. It's a costly thing to say. So someone can certainly mouth the words, Jesus is Lord, or say, Lord Jesus, and still be mocking and insincere. But the only way one can say it in faith and in love and in reality to the glory of God the Father is in and by the Holy Spirit. Again, Robertson is helpful, and he says when that phrase, in the Spirit, en numati, is used, en numati theu He says it can either be the sphere or the instrumentality. Both are okay. In the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. You can't say Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father unless you say it by or in or both the Holy Spirit. So now, that which glorifies the Father is obviously the doxological and faith-filled acknowledgement. We're talking about here every tongue, even if those of you that think there's a condition for salvation called faith, this is saying every mouth is going to make a confession of faith, that Jesus is Lord. 
That which glorifies the Father is therefore the doxological, faith-filled acknowledgement, kurios Jesus. When every tongue makes that acknowledgement, it will be universally worshipful. It is a very powerful bit of midrash or interpretation on the part of Paul under the Holy Spirit. In Romans 14.11, note that, note that well, because in Romans 14.11, Paul quotes that famous thing from Isaiah 45.23, when God says, I, as I live, I swear, God says, every knee will genuflect to me, and every tongue will acknowledge that I am Lord. And Paul says here, interpreting that passage, even in most English translations, it says, every tongue will give praise to God. Now, how come? That's the word exhomologeo. So how can he say give praise to God? It's a very powerful bit of midrash, which is a rabbinical way of interpretation on the part of Paul in Romans 14, 11. He gives the nuance to ex homo in the dative case. We're radically engaging the text, I told you. Dative is a case. Every verb has a case. Every verb has a mood. Every verb has a voice. Every verb has a tense. The dative case here is used in Romans 14, 11. And that makes a big difference about how you interpret ex Homologeo. Because the dative indicates a personal interest of praise. Now, in Matthew 3 6, you have ex homologeo. When people were being baptized by John the Baptist, they confessed ex homologeo their sins. That's just the fact. That was the accusative. They simply confessed their sins. But in this case, the confession is one of praise. Now, let me, let me illustrate this a little further, and then we'll close. Paul, in Romans 14.11, gives the nuance to ex homologeo with the date of case as to give praise. Every mouth will give praise to me as I live, God says. Speaking of the implication that all will live and say this. They will live with his life as I live. Jesus says, as I live, so you will live also. No one can say the Lord, Yahweh, is Jesus, Yeshua, while filled with praise, we could say, except by God the Holy Spirit, and that to the glory of God the Father. In the accusative case, the idea, and I'm using Perschbacher's definition here, the quote, the idea is extension, limitation, goal, or motion toward. The dative case is, same by Wesley Perschbacher in his grammar, the case of personal interest. So when ex homologeo is used in the accusative case, as it is in Matthew 3, 6, with the confession of sins, then the confession is limited to sins. People are confessing their sins. It is a mere objective fact that while being baptized by John, people confess their sins. But the dative case is employed by Matthew in Matthew 11.25. Note that verse well, because there Jesus uses the word 
ex homologeo in the dative case, and it's very personal. He says, I thank you, Father. Ex homologeo is used. Why is it I thank you? I praise you, Father. Because it's a dative case of ex homologeo and indicates personal praise. I thank you, and it's very interesting what he says here. I thank you, Father. I praise you, Father. He just burst out into that interjection in the midst of being with people. He just said that. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord Curie of heaven and earth. The Father is Lord. The Holy Spirit is called Lord in 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. Jesus, the man Christ Jesus is called Lord because he's also divine. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've chosen to reveal, apocalyptically reveal these things, not to the sophisticated and the educated, but to children. So when he says ex homologu mai soi pater curiae tu urano kai tes geis. He is saying, Father, I praise you, Father. Ex homologeo, I praise you. Every tongue will sing praise. We're not talking about a forced confession here, like Augustine and others taught. Well, God's going to raise up these people that didn't believe in him. He's going to raise them from the dead. He's going to give them a glorified body so he can torture them for eternity. And he's going to force them. It's like he's going to go behind them and kick them right beneath the thigh so that it'll force them to bend their knee. And then he's going to throw them into hell. Well, that's, yeah, that's, I can't wait to go to church and worship your God. And I used to try to worship that God. It got kind of difficult. Got kind of difficult. Because when Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father, then I, I see Jesus Christ crucified. I see that. Let me tell you something else. God did not forsake Jesus Christ on the cross. But Christ was so identified with the God forsaken or with people in the creation that he perceived that to be the case. So much was the shame upon him. So much was the force and the power of sin upon him. If we see Jesus, we see the Father. I have to see the Father, therefore, crucified in the Son. I have to see the Father experiencing shame and horror and terror. And that's a truth that was brought up in that movie that you've all begged me to go see, and I finally saw it, The Shack. That was brought up properly. It was an excellent movie. It was an excellent parable, an excellent analogy. And it challenges all kinds of cultural, racial, and theological, mostly, sensibilities of people who are stuck. And the people that are offended by it, you know what they say, of course, don't you? It's about universalism. Of course it is, you moron. We're talking about God here. Now, all right. I praise you, Father. And this is right after he says, 
The son reveals to anybody that he wants to who the father is. And guess what? The son reveals, wants to reveal everybody who the father is. And how does he do it? He said, you'll know that I am he when you have lifted me up on Calvary. You see Jesus crucified. You see the father. Nail scars are a Trinitarian problem. Now, God the Father, listen carefully. This is the case, the same case when Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is the same case employed by Paul in Romans 14, 11, the dative case. Right after saying that Jesus, having died and having been made alive from the dead by the glory of the Father, is understood, is now Lord of both the living and the dead. That includes the dead in sins in Ephesians 2, 1, and the dead in graves. Right after saying he's Lord of the living and the dead, which is his universal lordship, he then says, talks about every tongue publicly confessing that Jesus is Lord. The Lord Yahweh is Yeshua. The confession will be universally one of praise. It will be one of doxology. It will be one of giving glory to God the Father. God the Father is glorified by the confession of Jesus as Lord in the power and by the agency of the Holy Spirit. This truth is profoundly Trinitarian. So you can't relate true doctrine of universal salvation to Unitarianism because we're Trinitarian. So already we've made you trip, haven't we? You're tripping. You're tripping over the tripping stone that God set in Zion. So the original you're tripping is in 1 Peter 2. There's no new hip language that's original. It all goes back to something else a long time ago. Now, oh man, I still have a minute. Notice that in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus calls his father Lord of heaven and earth. First he calls him father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. It's first, Father. Indicating that the Father has authority over both spheres, heaven and earth. Please then note in Matthew 28, 18, the risen Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Given by whom? By the Father. So match 11.25 of Matthew with 28.18. The Father is called Lord. The Holy Spirit is called Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Jesus Christ is called Lord. So the title Lord belongs to the Father and to the Spirit and to the man, Christ Jesus who is also God the Son, who is the Son who hands over 
the kingdom to God the Father when he, the Father, will have brought all of his enemies under his feet. When the Father will have abolished all rule and every holder of authority and power in opposition to God's all-powerful grace in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-one, Jesus is the Son who rules now until all his enemies are under his feet, the last one being death, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. The Son, again, I say, is who he is, who will also be subject to him who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Ta panta en pasin. That's where we ended up in our exegesis of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 28, especially 24 to 28. So now when God is all in all, the eschatological glory of the Father is realized. The hope of the glory of God, which we boastfully rejoice in, which is all I'm doing tonight, is boastfully rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. I'm expecting this to be universally realized. Eschatological realization. It's the glorification of the triune God in and throughout all of creation in all of its times. Because remember, God steps into history not just to redeem humankind, but to redeem all creation and to redeem time itself. He redeems history from its cycle of progress and decline, and he makes it all level. He embraces universal history. He redeems and restores the years that the locust has eaten in your life, in my life, in human history. He justifies the ungodly. He raises the dead. He calls things into existence that didn't exist before. He invades human history through two divine missions to rescue creation from its slavery to powers like sin and death and Torah under the control of sin and the flesh which is not just the lower nature of man, but it is an impulsive desire that no one can control except the Holy Spirit. This is all going toward, believe it or not, your Christian life. So it's going to get practical for those of you that require practicality. Practicality is, in, is nothing unless you get the theological background of it. Otherwise, you're trying to live a Christian life in the energy of the flesh. It's pathetic. It's the most miserable kind of life you can live, a life detached from the crucified one, a life detached from the power of the Spirit, from the glory of the Father. Christianity detached from the cross is the most pathetic. I'd rather be a Buddhist, and that's a pretty pathetic way to live. So this glory of the Father is inextricably joined to the resurrection, which is forever united. Forever the resurrection is united in a single event with the death of Jesus by crucifixion. You can't divorce the two. For the glory of the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and the glory of the Father raises all the dead because of Jesus. If the first fruits are holy, and God has done this, he's made Christ to be holiness for us and he made him to be sin who knew no sin that he might make us 
the fruit of his deliverance or the righteousness, the righteousness of God in him. So listen carefully. A few more things, a few more, a flurry more of punches. This is just another flurry of punches as I deviated into that abuse thing, which I needed to do. The glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead raises all the dead because of Jesus. He raises them not to a judgment of condemnation. He raises them to a judgment of justification and into a state of rectification, setting things right. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus all will be made alive. So there is no condemnation to all humankind because they're all made alive in Christ. That seems to square with the little declarations like he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He's the savior of all mankind, especially those that believe, but not exclusively those that believe. I like it better when it was exclusively those who believe because that set me apart from that man over there, that sinner over there, that whore, that drunkard, that swindler, that politician, the worst of all. Consequently, in the eschaton, the realization and actualization of what is now an eventual restoration of all things, will be when all are in Christ and condemnation and cursing will be eradicated for all. That's Revelation 22.3, if you remember. This is the gospel according to Paul in Romans 2.16. Paul said, the teacher said, remember, he's, there's going to be a final judgment. And Paul said, yes, through Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. This is the gospel according to Paul. I know I called him and I remember his number one, two, three, five, 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 seven fives. This is the gospel of God concerning his son in Romans two, three to four Romans one, rather two to four who has testified about in the old Testament scriptures. This is the gospel unchained. This is the gospel that breaks the chains that bind humanity. The yokes of slavery to which human beings have willingly or unwillingly submitted. And sometimes the shame and slavery in which they glory. This is the gospel which reveals the glory of the Father. This is the gospel that predicts that his glory will be resplendent throughout all of creation in all of its times. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that there will be something that we receive tonight that makes us see more clearly the Lamb who has taken away the sins of the world, the enthroned one, whose enthronement began in crucifixion. And we thank you, Father, for your glory, which raised him from the dead. And it's by your glory that we live in this new way of life. And as we're going to learn tomorrow night, perhaps in Romans 7, 6, this new way of serving as priests, the living God.